0: if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to specifically be in verse 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Church membership. What is it? What is church membership? When we say church membership, what do we mean when we say church membership? Membership is a common thing that we use in our society. You can be a member of a grocery store now. This is a thing. You can buy like 19 packages of hot dog weenies for like a dollar because you're a member of a grocery store. You can get discounts, get access to more food at less cost. You can be a member of a gym. You can get special hours, maybe. Sometimes, depending on your level of membership, you might get access to certain parts of the club, special access, special times when you can be there. That's a kind of membership. You can be a member of Amazon.com now. You can get nearly anything in the world at your front door in two days. It's a wonderful gift of the Lord, common (laughs) grace that he has given to us that don't like to shop. (laughs) So when we use the term church membership, what do we mean? Maybe, Maybe we mean that you can get access to the facilities being a church member. If you want to come up here at 12 a.m., you want to come up here at 1 a.m., the wee hours of the morning, and use our facilities, is that what we mean when we say church member? Maybe it gives you access. Maybe it gives you access to the pastoral staff, so you can call us at 1 a.m. for wisdom. I can guarantee you, if you call me at 1 a.m., it's not wisdom that you're going to get. I I couldn't even guarantee you what you're going to get, (laughs) but I know it's not going to be wise, whatever it is. maybe you get discounts. We have a meal up here every once in a while. Maybe you could turn in a membership card. Give everybody membership cards. You could turn it in and get 10% discount on your pizza. When you say you're a church member, it's no different than saying I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Those are interchangeable terms. I'm a church member, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you say, I am a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, now you're saying, not only am I a member of or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but the citizens that gather together at Emanuel Baptist Church can vouch for me they would tell you that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That as far as they can tell, the fruit that they see from my life, by best judgment, they would tell you that I am a citizen of the kingdom. So then, if what we have here, or what we're supposed to have here, are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then we need to ask the question, when we look at the membership roles of Emmanuel Baptist Church, Do we see citizens of the kingdom of heaven there? This morning, we're in the middle of looking at what is traditionally referred to as the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, 3 to 12. That's the Beatitudes. It's where Jesus goes, Blessed, 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 all the way down. The Beatitudes occur at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us the character or the makeup of the person that is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you'll remember in the previous chapter, Jesus is coming in and he's bringing with him the kingdom of heaven. He tells everybody, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, everybody's listening, their attention is drawn to him, and he's telling them what this citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. And from what we've seen so far, citizens of the kingdom of heaven have attributes that the world we live in don't value. Whereas we look for the strong, the ones that can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, the self-made man, the powerful people, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, it does not operate that way. The question that I want to raise in your mind for self-reflection is what does my life look like? What does my life look like? If we were allowed, as a congregation, to examine your life, what sorts of things would we see? Would we see an ardent follower of Christ, scarred by battles with sin and temptation? Some victories, some losses... But overall, a character that has been shaped by the Holy Spirit. Or would we see someone who has given up fighting against sin? Now with that in mind, I want to look at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read 3 through 12, but we're going to focus on verse 4 this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in verse 3, uh, last week, we saw him say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we spent last week unpacking what exactly it meant to be poor in spirit. And very simply, we said that it, it meant to be totally dependent on God for righteousness. And truly, we're dependent on God for everything, but righteousness in particular is called out in this text, in the context here. Now, you realize, essentially, in being poor in spirit, that you're an impoverished soul, that you're coming before God, and you don't have anything that you're bringing to the table that's of such value that would cause God to say, yeah, that's really valuable, I I really like that, I I really need that more than anything. So you know what I'm going to give you in exchange for that, I'm going to give you eternal life. That's not the case for us. Someone who is poor in spirit is realizing that without God granting mercy on him, he has no such claim to righteousness outside of the mercy of God. So verse 3, being poor in spirit, is an internal, heartfelt attitude. Now we move into verse 4. And in verse 4, what we see in verse 4 is the visible effect of being poor in spirit. In other words, what does poor in spirit look like? If you were to see it, what would it look like as a disposition? Jesus says it's a mourner. As I said last week, these are characteristics of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all these beatitudes that we're going to be going through in 5, 3 through 12 are describing the same person, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says here, blessed are the mourners. And this should really make us ask, what's he talking about? What does he mean, mourner? I'm going to give two definitions for mourner this morning. And then we're going to look at how it applies to our congregation as a whole, our church body. First, a mourner is one who is driven to grief by the effects of a sinful world. A mourner is one who is driven to grief by the effects of a sinful world. Now it's tempting... To make surface-level interpretations of all these things that Jesus says. To make physical, real-world interpretations of all these things. I hear pastors do it all the time. And so if we interpret this on the surface, blessed are the mourners, for they shall be comforted, then we would say maybe that if you're sad in any way, if you've ever shed a tear, if you're currently in a state of mourning, then you're going to be comforted with the kingdom of heaven. If that's all it takes is to be sad for Jesus to give to you the kingdom of heaven. Well, could we extend that to maybe ridiculous things like my DVR was full and it, it didn't record Fixer Upper? I found out when it was too late. But you know what? I'm claiming the promise Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. No. It's obvious that as we read the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is speaking to spiritual issues, to heart level issues. And they can't be applied merely to physical conditions. As an example, as we saw last week, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It wouldn't be right for us to chop off the words in spirit and just say that Jesus is speaking simply to those that are physically poor. And if you're physically poor, that's all it takes to be in the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that last week. That's not what he means. That's obviously not what he's talking about. We can't go to verse 7 there and say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and just chop off for righteousness and say, All that's required to get into the kingdom of heaven is you have to be hungry and thirsty. That's not true either. Well, the same is true of our verse today. Blessed are those who mourn. These are not simply sad people. These are sad for a spiritual reason. These individuals are sad for sin. Sad over sin. Some of the Beatitudes that we read through are actually alluding to a passage out of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, 1-3. through 3. It should appear on the screen behind me, and you can follow along with me up there. But in this passage, you're going to hear some of the same terms that Jesus is using in the Beatitudes. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord, this is in Isaiah 61, 1-3, through 3, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of The Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. The passage in Isaiah that we just read comes right at the end of the book. And where where there's a promise that Isaiah is making, that God is really making, through the prophet Isaiah, for redemption of his people that are lost in the darkness of sin. And they're looking for someone to rescue them. They're looking for a rescuer. And God's promise in the last half of the book of Isaiah is that he's going to send his anointed one. Who in Isaiah 61 right there is talking. He's the one speaking. He's the one saying, I am coming. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to comfort those who mourn. I'm going to proclaim good news to the poor. What is he talking about there? He's saying that he's going to save people from their sins. The people in Israel are lost in a generation. Also lost in sin. And he's going to redeem them. Matthew tells us at the beginning of the gospel, through the angel who talks to Joseph, who says that Jesus is going to come do what? Rescue people from their sins. In Luke's gospel, Jesus stands up and reads that passage in Isaiah, and he says in the synagogue, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So there is no question that the New Testament authors are making the claim, and Jesus himself is making the claim, that the one foretold by Isaiah, who is going to come in and be the anointed one, to be the rescuer, who is going to shed light in the darkness, is none other than Jesus himself. So in Isaiah 61, 2-3, when he says that this rescuer, this anointed one, is going to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the primary problem that this anointed one is coming to address is the problem of sin. And specifically in that context, the sinful conditions that Israel has found herself in. Now coming back into Matthew, the stamp Of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is one who is in a mournful state over sin and the effects that it has had on the world around him. We're in a a very unique time. We can see the effects of sin all around us. We can turn on the TV and we can see it. We can read in the newspapers, those are those black and white things that you fold open and you read. Uh, we can read in the newspapers the effects of sin, see it right there in front of us. We see it all over the internet, everywhere we go. Most recently, the whole world saw it in Broward County, Florida. When Nicholas Cruz walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and shot 33 people and killed 17. But another tragedy followed that shooting as Christians began responding to TV personalities and social media posts by drawing their own political lines in the sand. Now, some are talking about policies that need to be passed by our government, some are talking about amendments that need to be changed, and some are defending their own Second Amendment rights or whatever. But virtually no one is in a state of mourning over the tragedy that happened on that day. When you're in mourning, silence is wisdom. Because when you're in mourning, you don't say wise things. And you certainly don't make wise decisions when you're in mourning. But the fact that everyone is willing to weigh in with their opinion, while the dead bodies are still warm, is proof that as a nation, and maybe even as a church, we have grown desensitized to sin. That it no longer grieves us in our soul the tragedy that we see on display immediately just becomes hijacked into political discourse. We think to ourselves, mourning, why? I, I don't know those people. We won't shed one tear over this issue. Most of us won't be driven to our knees in prayer for these families. For most of us, the only reason we'll even have our curiosity piqued is so that we can be in the know around the water cooler or the coffee pot at work. Friends, that's not the posture of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Posture of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Is one who mourns over the sinful effect or the effect of sin on our world. As I said last week, the Beatitudes weave their way through the Gospel of Matthew, and you see them appear over over various times. And, And when we get there to various places along the way, we'll point back to the Beatitudes. We'll never actually leave them as long as we're in Matthew. But this posture of mourning appears again in Matthew 9, 15. You can write that down or you can turn there if it's just a couple pages. But Jesus is asked in Matthew 9, Why don't your disciples fast like John's fast? Why don't they fast like the disciples of the Pharisees? Why don't they give up food and go into mourning like their disciples do? And Jesus returns the question, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? There will be a day, the the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The posture of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is not only that sin has taken its toll, but that Jesus has not made it right yet. That He hasn't come to fully restore His kingdom That not all things have been made right. And so we mourn because one day we know that He will. And we long deep down for that day when it happens. That's what we're mourning for. For Him to make it right. For as much argument and debate as the book of Revelation causes, there's one thing that is abundantly clear in all of its pages. There is lots of carnage throughout the entire book of Revelation. You can see that. No matter what position you take on Revelation, you can clearly see that. And the wicked take the lion's share of the carnage in that book. And it's terribly tragic and sad as we read it. But the whole book leads John, in the second to last verse of the book, to cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. I wonder sometimes why my heart is so far from that cry. That when tragedy strikes, when I see devastation of sin all around me, I can see it on display as it's taking place. And my first reaction, totally transparent here, my first reaction is to defend my rights. To lock up my guns. Why is the first reaction in my heart not, Come, Lord Jesus. Make this right. Why am I not driven to a state of mourning immediately when I see tragedies on display in front of me? Is it because I'm too desensitized to it? Or is it because my mind isn't kingdom first? Either one is scary to think about. A mourner is one who is driven to grief by the the effects of a sinful world, but a mourner is also one who is driven to grief by his own sin. It's not just the sinful condition of the world that turns the stomachs or that breaks the hearts of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it's also his own sin. You see, this is the result of one who is poor in spirit. This is what happens because one is poor in spirit. He grieves over his own sin. So someone who understands that he must depend on God for his righteousness, he is poor in spirit, understands that his own sin is the barrier between him and God. The very thing that prevents him from being with God right now at this very moment is his own sin, But listen, there are people that will hear that. that They'll hear what I just said. They may even agree with it. And they will leave and totally ignore the sin in their own life. They will continue to pursue sin as if it doesn't exist. And they won't do anything and everything to separate themselves from it. Hear me, that is the antithesis of someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The exact opposite. That's what you call faking it. And you might be able to fake it for a while. Maybe even a lifetime. But let me be clear. Mourning over sin is part of the character profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Mourning over your own sin is part of the character profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The book of James gives us a really clear picture of this posture that I'm talking about. It's in James 4 7 to 10. It should appear on the screen. Behind me, James 4, 7-10, he says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves there for, uh, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's the picture of a Christian whose laughter has been turned to mourning over his own sin. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that a Christian isn't allowed to laugh. That's certainly not what he's, he's getting at. He's contrasting the attitude of the disciple of Christ with the attitude of the rich and haughty who are, co- who are convinced that they're the king of their own universe. That's not the attitude of the Christ follower, of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There's no room for boasting because he realizes that he's a sinner and that he's standing before a righteous judge who has the power to condemn. And he's begging him for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. It's here that we as Christians can veer into one ditch or the other. One ditch says, woe is me. My sin is so great. I've sinned so grievously. I can never recover from this sin. God is holy. I am lowly. And surely He will never forgive me from this sin. And then we fall into a deep depression because surely I've sinned so grievously that God is never going to forgive me. This is a form of pride. It masquerades itself as self-deprecation, as humility, but it's false humility. See, you, it basically says this, you, you think God is really gracious and really kind, he's so gracious and so kind, but let me tell you, he hasn't met me yet. You know what kind of sinner I am? I'm convinced I've come up with new sins that he's never seen before. And not only that, I have surely this time far out His grace. Can you imagine that? Sin is so entrenched in our thought processes that we can be prideful in the pit of despair. That's one ditch. The other ditch says, Well, yeah, I sinned, but I'm a Christian, so it's no big deal. There I go again, making another mistake. Better to ask for forgiveness than permission, am I right? Christ didn't shed his blood so that we could make sin a personal hobby. He shed his blood so that we can go to war with it and that we can have the tools through the power of the Holy Spirit to kill it. To free us from it to wage war on a daily basis with the flesh. But let me tell you, if you constantly are giving in to sin, you can't rightly say that you're struggling with temptation, can you? I mean, a struggle would indicate that there's some form of resistance that you're putting up. But if you're constantly giving in to it, you're in lawless rebellion of the Christ that you say that you follow. There's a middle road that avoids both ditches. On the one hand, we take sin very seriously and it sees sin as grievous, so it avoids this ditch that says sin is no big deal. It's a person that surrounds himself with believers that have a backbone, believers that have a spine, that will point out sin in his life and sometimes it will hurt and sometimes it will be offensive, and sometimes it will cause him anguish and tears, but it will sharpen him. And he prays with David Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And more than anything, he desires sin to be revealed, not hidden, but revealed. So that it can be confessed and repented of because he knows how much it grieves the father. But then when he confesses. He leans on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And he reminds himself that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he trusts in the mercy of God to lift up his head, to give him beauty for ashes, to give him an oil of gladness instead of mourning. To not just stay in a perpetual state of mourning, but rejoice over the forgiveness that he's found in Christ so that he avoids the other ditch. The woe is me ditch. He believes that he's a child of God who's been redeemed not because of anything that he's done. Not because he's so great. But because of what Christ has done. And because of the fact that though God had wrath for him he poured it out on Christ instead of on us. And so he trusts in that forgiveness that he has found in Christ. Now listen. Listen. Heaven is for real, but not everyone is going to see it. That's completely the opposite message from what is told in so many pulpits across America. Heaven is real, but not everyone is going to see it. Notice Jesus' words here, Those who mourn shall be comforted. The ones that mourn are the ones that receive the comfort. They're going to be comforted by what? Well, by now, right now, they're comforted by the fact that they're declared righteous before God. That's one kind of comfort. That if you're in Christ, that's what you have at this very moment. You're declared righteous before Him. That's justification. That's one kind of comfort. But then, ultimately, Christ will come back and establish His kingdom once and for all. He will eradicate evil of all kinds. Sin will never come in again. He will wipe away every tear. And that's the ultimate kind of comfort that we're looking for. So, what kind of member are you? Have you seen sin's effects on your soul? Do you have the scars to prove it? Has it left you in grief? In mourning? Over not only your own sin, but the sin that is around you in the world? Do you long for Christ to come and rid us of this? Confess your sins to God. Trust Him. For his mercy and flee from sin and never look back. Now this theme of mourning. Mourning over sin. Understanding sin's effects. Turning from it. Repenting from it. That theme carries throughout Matthew. But not in the way that you would expect. In Matthew 16. This is going to also appear behind us on the screen. You'll be able to follow along with me. But in Matthew 16. This is right after Peter confesses that you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 17, "'Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven.'" So it's clear that, in that even in that passage, that this kingdom that's at hand when Christ brings it in, here at, back in Matthew 4 and 5, that kingdom that's at hand is being given over to the church by the end of the book. And it is to carry on forward because of the church's proclamation of the gospel. The church then sees more and more citizens become part of the kingdom of heaven. But then two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out how the church goes through the discipline of those citizens. How the church goes through church discipline. Now, church discipline may be an unfamiliar word to you, but basically all it is is the process of correcting sin in one another's life. That's all it is. Jesus says this in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. "'between you and him alone. "'If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. "'But if he does not listen to you, "'take one or two others along with you, "'that every charge may be established "'by the evidence of two or three witnesses. "'If he refuses to listen to them, "'tell it to the church. "'And if he refuses to listen even to the church, "'let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector.' Truly I say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now certainly there's a lot of things to unpack in those passages and we will do that when we get there. But all I want to all I want you to see here is what is the expected reaction of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven when he or she is approached by sin about sin concerning sin. He turns Jesus says there, He listens to you. If He listens to you, you've gained your brother. So as the church is proclaiming the gospel, or as Jesus said, is given the keys to the kingdom, the mission is not only to introduce people to the resurrected Lord. That's certainly a mission of the church, to introduce people to the resurrected Lord. But it's also to help each other fight sin. To help each other mourn over sin. The process that the church goes through is to establish mourning in the church over sin. That's what we're supposed to be about as a body, collectively, as Christians. Mourning together and individually over our sin. But you see what it tells you when a person turns and repents testifies to what Jesus is telling us all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. That this person is poor in spirit. That this person is a mourner over sin. But what does it tell you if the person refuses to repent from sin? Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If he has no desire to repent, it's probable that he's not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he means. So this character profile that we see back in Matthew, the Beatitudes, they're not only citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they're also church members. You see the correlation between the two. So let me ask you, Emmanuel Baptist Church, what kind of members do we have here? What kind of members fill our pews? Do we have members of a gym? Or do we have members of a church? The difference is one is equipped to fight sin and desires with all their might to do so. The other is just there to work out. Are you willing to do the difficult work of pushing back against the sin in our own lives? Are you willing to call others out on their sins? The basic question is, do you care enough about your brother or sister to help them mourn over sin? Do you care that much? The character of this church will be tested over time. And if our character is that of citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then our church members, we will find that our members together care about each other enough to watch each other's backs as we attempt, all of us, at some point or another, to fall into sin. That we together as a body will watch each other's backs. That we will warn each other That we will help correct each other. That we will take each other back. It will be borne out over time. We will find out what we have here. So the process is really simple. And it's in this order. As it applies to us as a whole. First, are you aware of any sin that is in your own life that you have yet to confess? Do so now. Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. Why does he say take the log out of your own eye? Just so that you can see? No. So that you can see clearly to help your brother take the speck out of his eye. That's why you get rid of sin is so that you can help your brother. You're of no help to us if you are unrepentant. Then second, are you aware of a sin in your brother or sister's life? Do you care enough about them to lovingly tell them? Even sternly tell them, if necessary. Are you afraid that they're going to turn back on you and attack you? Well, they might. But I think we can see here that that's not a response of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And it sure shouldn't be a response of a member of this church. Jesus is clear in Matthew 18, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven will listen to you. And when they turn, you have your brother or your sister back. If we don't care about each other in this way specifically, then membership here will be no different than Costco. In a moment, we're going to pray. And we use this time as a time of reflection. And we use it as a time of reflection on purpose. So that you can think about the words that Jesus has laid out here in Scripture. You can think specifically about how they apply to you. You can think about the sin in your own life, and you can confess it. You don't have to move. You don't have to do any of those things. We will pass the plates as well during that time. But you feel free to come before the Lord and confess those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for a time to gather together in your name. To sing praises to your name. And to confess how sinful we are. Lord, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of everyone in this congregation. That we would truly see ourselves as iron sharpening iron. That as we come together, we would identify ourselves with this character profile in the Beatitudes more than anything, we would seek to become poor in spirit. To mourn. To be meek. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would create that in our hearts. A stirring. A stirring to, to push ourselves towards righteousness and push the other people around us towards righteousness as well. I pray in that process you would raise up leaders within this church to inspire that kind of response to your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you have paid on our behalf that we may even come to you, confess, and be forgiven. We pray that you would do this now in our church, bringing us together as a people wholly dedicated to your calling in this city. In Jesus' name.